Hi everyone and welcome to another Daily Objective. Today it's a very weird evening. The world is shocked by the news of the death of Diego Maradona and definitely people of the generation of myself and Brendan, you know, we grew up with Maradona. He was the god in football. So yeah, that was a, that was quite a shock. Maybe we're going to squeeze in at some point during the week a show on Maradona, although the next episodes are set. But anyway, so you might notice that today we haven't got the usual co-hosts, but today we have a guest. And this guest is Brennan O'Neill, the editor of Spiked. You've seen him definitely before on the show. And if you pay any attention to the public here in the UK, you obviously already know him. So we're discussing Jordan Peterson, who somehow is back on the news. So what happened? And he's back on the news. So first of all, thank God Peterson is well, because he had a big adventure with his health. And not only his back, but he has a new book. And the book is called Beyond Order, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. And you could say, I wasn't really convinced from the first book. I don't really need 12 more rules from Jordan Peterson. I'm not going to care. And yet somehow today Peterson is, has been trending on Twitter all day before the bad Maradona news. Why is this? Because there was an, in, an internal revolt from the publisher. The publisher is... Penguin Random House Canada. And many employees do not want to publish this book. To use the popular language, they want to cancel this book. And let me read you some of the things that has been mentioned by employees on why they want to do this. So they are concerned that they were going to be platforming, platforming someone who is popular in far-right circles, problem number one that he's an icon of hate speech, whatever that means. He's an icon of transphobia, but also he's the one who's responsible for radicalizing and causing the surge of alt-right groups. And particularly one employee said that the problem with Peterson is that he radicalized his or her father. And many people say, this is personal for me. And this is why many people burst into tears from what we from what we know so we're going to discuss this with brendan of course feel free to ask your questions or super chat questions so brendan there are many things here i want to unpack but what is your first reaction what was your first reaction when you read the news about the cancelling attempt towards john peterson i just thought what a bunch of babies i mean that was my first non-philosophical response to this <laughs> just that they were behaving like children and, you know, as you say, according to some of the reports, there were people were crying, they were breaking down. Apparently, one person said that Jordan Peterson radicalized their father. So, you know, apparently their dad has been watching Jordan Peterson on YouTube and has become this radical monster as a consequence. I mean, the way they were talking, they just sounded so completely pathetic. And the point is very simple. I mean, there are two points. The first one is incredibly simple, which is that if you are offended by books, if you think there are certain authors who shouldn't, should never be published, if you, if you cannot handle ideas, then you shouldn't be working in publishing. You should be working somewhere else. Or, or, or maybe you should never leave the house if you are so easily offended by people disagreeing with you or pushing ideas that are different to your own. That's the first point. The second point, I think, which is a bit more serious, is that this is not a one-off. Um, I know Jordan Peterson gets a lot of flack. He always has. He's been demonized and caricatured as this kind of alt-right figurehead, which is not true at all. Um, but there is a... Beyond Jordan Peterson, there is a broader trend now of 
largely millennial Generation Z people in publishing in the newspaper world at the New York Times, for example, and more recently this week at The Guardian, who outrageously think that only their views should be given a platform, only people who agree with them should be allowed to write, and anything else must be chased out. So I think what happened at Penguin Random House uh, in Canada is actually indicative of of a problem that's occurring across the publishing world in the West at the moment, or certainly in the Anglo-American world, which is this new intolerant generation who genuinely think that they have the right to cancel certain opinions. Right, so let's go to a bit more detail. So there are three things that got my attention. The first is, it takes two minutes of Googling to find out that Jordan Peterson, not only he's not an icon of the alt-right, Actually, the alt-right despises him. They hate him for various reasons. So the first is the, the level of lying. So it's one thing to say, well, Jordan Peterson, you know, he's, he's not in my side on the, on, on the transgender discussion. But to say he's alt-right means that you didn't even take the time to Google. So that's the one thing. The other thing that really got my attention, and it's good to have a Marxist here to, to, to kind of dive into this point. It used to be that employees would revolt for things such as their paying, their, like better conditions or more money or whatever. What we see more and more is that the dynamic is that employees are, quote, revolting on things that is, as you said, very hypersensitive or shows this entitlement that the fact that I work for you means that you need to do whatever I tell you. But also the other weird thing is that being in the university, I've heard many times colleagues or friends from other universities telling me whenever we're very mad, we send all these emails to the to the administration and then the administration is having they're having a meeting and they listen to us and they nod the head and says, yes, yes, we hear you. We hear you. And that's that, that's basically it. So it's almost like a game that we're going to be angry and the administration is going to listen and nod the head. But here it gets slightly more complicated. Because what the employees are saying is that, look, during this summer of revolt, you, uh, Penguin Publishing House, you were supposed to support us. You were, you were doing all these campaigns in social media. You told us you're an ally, and now you're not an ally. So in a way, I would say to Penguin, maybe you brought this to you, mm -hmm. but what's your comment on that? Uh, I think there's a, I, I agree with that. I think a lot of publishing houses and corporations and other businesses um, are going to bring this kind of thing upon themselves because a lot of them are so obsessed with virtue signaling and so obsessed with pushing the right opinion and issuing corporate statements about things that have nothing to do with their business. Um, you know, like the murder of George Floyd or the Black Lives Matter protests or whatever else it might be, or slavery. You know, you have all these institutions now pouring over their own historical links to slavery as if anyone really cares about that ancient history. Um, the more they do this stuff, the more they think it's deflecting attention. They think it's a way of protecting themselves from the woke mob. But I think it will probably have the opposite effect, which is that they will come under greater scrutiny. And if they ever do or say or publish anything which runs even slightly counter to the correct way of thinking, they will be called hypocrites and dragged over the coals. So they should stick to what they do. In, in this case, they should stick to publishing interesting books and stop playing these political games. That's not what they're there for. Um, I really agree with your point about 
the changing nature of revolt in the workplace. And one thing that's really striking, I think, is the way in which these, you know, pretty bourgeois, entitled millennial people, the way in which they use the language of class and they use that they try to borrow from the language of the 20th century to justify their temper tantrums. So if you look at Spotify, for example, when, when Joe Rogan's podcast moved to Spotify, lots of moaning, weeping, pathetic Spotify employees um, kicked up a storm and threatened to hold a kind of strike. You know, they threatened to have a walkout in protest against Rogan being on their platform. And they were using that kind of language, strike, walkout, you know, ceasing to work, all those kinds of things, which were traditionally, that was the language of working class movements who did those things whether you agreed with them or not, they did those things in order to increase their pay and in order to get better conditions in the workplace. In my view, those were honourable things to fight for and I believe very strongly in the right to strike. But what what these new um, bourgeois censors are doing, these kind of intolerant youngish people, they're using that language to pursue something that is entirely unprogressive, um, which is this idea that corporations essentially have the right to decide to become the new gatekeepers of intellectual uh, of the intellectual sphere because when they're calling on spotify to cancel rogan or calling on random house not to publish jordan peterson or you know you have public you have people working at jk rowling's publisher saying we shouldn't publish her books anymore what they're really doing is empowering corporations or trying to empower corporations to decide what is fit for public consumption and what ideas we're allowed to read and what ideas we're allowed to hear. So they use the language of, um, you know, the 20th century language of class and strikes and so on, but actually they are empowering big business to play the role of the moral gatekeeper of correct thought. So yeah, we're gonna disagree on whether big business are actually censoring, although we can agree on our moral evaluation of this. But let me play devil's advocate for a second. So both you and me, you know, we, we've been, we are part of a generation that was very political. So I remember, for example, my politicization started with NATO bombings in Serbia. And I couldn't wait to mobilize friends at school would put posters. And I think if I was working, let's say, in the university, I would want to do the same thing. So someone would say, isn't it right that when you have this, this passion inside you, that you feel so strongly about some cases and about justice, doesn't it make sense that you want to, let's say, boost that also the, your employer or your friends, that you boost them towards taking action towards what is right? Um, yes, I think a lot, of, a lot of people do that. A lot of people feel strongly about certain issues like war, poverty, or whatever else it might be. And they use any methods they think will work to try to push that cause. You know, they will put pressure on businesses, they will put pressure on politicians, they will hold public protests. I mean, all that kind of stuff is great. And that's the stuff of political life. I think what we're talking about here is something a little different, which is cancel culture, essentially. I mean, that's an it's an imperfect term for a very distinctive phenomenon, which is a phenomenon in which um, this is not about improving the world. This is not about making people more free or, or wealthier. In fact, it's about depriving people of the right to hear all sorts of ideas. So it's very, it's an entirely regressive campaign. Um, these people have the right to kick up a fuss. They have the right to um, cry in meetings at, at Random House, even though I think that's 
incredibly self-debasing. They have the right to do all these things. But I think the onus is on the rest of us who believe in freedom to really expose what they're doing. And what they're doing is under the language, they use the language of progressive politics. They use the language of uh, radicalism to pursue something which is in, it, actually incredibly regressive and incredibly dangerous because I really genuinely think they are empowering, you, you say we disagree on this, but I think they are empowering corporations or that's their ambition to play a role in public life that I think is very destructive. And it goes beyond publishing houses and um, uh, music platforms and podcast platforms like Spotify. If you also look at the way in which people on the left have called upon big tech to banish certain people and censor certain people and the way in which Donald Trump's tweets have been treated over the past three weeks. Um, every, almost every one of them has come with a health warning, essentially. Some of them have been hidden. I don't want unaccountable corporations to play that role in public life because what they are doing, they're assuming this right to tell us what is the right way to think and what is the wrong way to think. And it boggles my mind that left-wing people in particular would be so comfortable with corporations playing such an intrusive role in democratic life. So you mentioned Facebook, and actually we know that there was also an internal revolt against Zuckerberg because he didn't do what Twitter is doing. So they were telling him, we're very disappointed because you let Trump uh, tell his lies. But here's my, my disagreement. So we can criticize Facebook. We can say you are ridiculous. We can criticize Twitter. What I'm not in favor is telling to the government, make Twitter post things that I like. So here, that is the line, that, that's the hill that I'm gonna die on. So we should criticize them. And I think it's ridiculous what they do on Trump. By the way, how funny that the leftists forever have been talking about neoliberalism and how the media are deciding elections. Imagine if this was Merdoch intervening on the Brexit debate in the way Twitter intervened in the US elections. But I would never want the government to play a role and say to Twitter what they can do or what they can do. We should do that. We should, we should tell to Twitter, F off or whatever, you are ridiculous. But I don't want this role to be in the hands of the government that already has too much power and is uh, basically having us locked on our basement since, since March. By the way, kudos for being one of the first people who revolted back then about the lockdown before it was cool. But anyway. Um, yes, I, I would be uncomfortable with that as well. Um, I don't trust the government and I especially don't trust um, American or British officials when it comes to the issue of freedom of speech. So the problem with calling on um, the state essentially to um, force social media companies to be more liberal, I mean, it doesn't work. It's a contradiction in terms to begin with because you're using state pressure to increase freedom and that doesn't really make sense. But also um, our governments, as we know, particularly in the UK, don't give a damn about freedom of speech and in fact are incredibly hostile to it. I mean, if you look in Scotland, for example, what's currently happening with a hate crime bill that's going through, um, it was recently said that if you say in Scotland that trans women are not women, that could be a, an imprisonable offence. I mean, this is absolutely psychotic stuff. So I don't trust any of these officials to, to wrap the knuckles of social media, but something does have to be done. Um, I think the broader problem is there's an the, the absence of a culture of freedom. That is the broader 
problem. And what I would like is a, is a much healthier culture of freedom, uh, a, a sense that freedom of speech is not only necessary, but really good. And it's the thing that makes democracy and public life possible uh, in any meaningful way. I, I'd like to see much more of a celebration of freedom of speech, not, not as something we have to put up with, but as something that actually makes life so much better than it would otherwise would be. I don't think it's only when we create that kind of public culture that we'll be able to put pressure on social media companies to stop doing what they're doing. At the moment, the only pressure being put on social media companies, including by governments, in fact, is to be more censorious. Um, the UK government is frequently calling upon um, Facebook and Twitter to censor things more quickly and to take down offensive commentary. That's happening in Germany. That's happening in other European countries as well. So the only pressure they're getting, and, and, and also they get pressure from woke mobs, you know, these kind of supposedly radical woke mobs who will rise up and say, delete Katie Hopkins or, or delete Milo Yiannopoulos or whoever else it might be. Um, so the only pressure they're getting is the pressure to be more censorious. And until we turn that around and create a huge amount of pressure to respect freedom of speech and to abide by the First Amendment, essentially, then I don't think things will get better. And I, I agree with you. I don't think government intervention is the right solution to the crisis of freedom of speech. Good. So one last thing. You mentioned the... Uh some things that are usually the characterizations that we give to a whole generation, snowflakes and all that stuff. So what I found very interesting is that they mentioned to this reporter, by the way, that was uh, that, that news came out from Vice. So they mentioned, as if they were very surprised, quote, uh, the publisher, they're not going to acknowledge the reason they're doing it, and that is for money. I feel that would be the more honest route to go rather than making up excuses for Peterson. So the employee of a company which the previous book of Peterson sold 5 million copies. So Claire Lemon said something very interesting on Twitter. She says, imagine how many books were published by people who are up and coming because Peterson sold 5 million copies. And there you have the employees not being even able to understand that at the end of the day, it's their jobs at stake. And if we want to be even more cynical, if someone writes a book, let's say, supporting the causes that they are going to support, the fact that Peterson is selling millions means that their book has more chances to, to, be, to be published. And here's the final point they make. They said, the workers said that if the book isn't cancelled, so by the way, first aim, cancel the book. But if the book isn't cancelled, they would like Penguin Random House Canada to consider donating the profits from the book to LGBTQ organizations. So this is the level of the, I don't know, it's the education system, the culture. The culture is that if you're an employee, you don't want your employer to sell books. You, and best case, you strong arm your employee, sorry, your employer in giving the money to, to, to whoever they want. And as the producer behind the scenes says, if they want, they can donate their salaries. I don't think they're going to do so. But anyway, Brendan. Um, yeah, and I think even that idea, you know, it seems like a softer approach, just saying give some profits to LGBT charities. That seems more friendly and less illiberal. But even that is a pretty deranged idea, because what they're essentially saying is you have to pay, you have to do penance. Right. You have sinned by publishing Jordan Peterson and your penance is to give a certain amount of money to this charity. And that that might help to absolve you 
of your sins. That's what rich people used to do in the in the pre-modern era. They would give a lot of money to the Catholic Church and uh, absolve themselves of their sins. That's what's really going on here. Um, Random House should absolutely refuse to do that. I think it's a preposterous idea. Um, but I think the 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 issue you raise about employees not even realizing that. Um, publishing successful books is good for their companies and good for the world of publishing more generally. You know, the world of publishing has, has lots of problems at the moment and books are in crisis in some ways. So it's great when there is a very successful book like the ones that Jordan Peterson writes. They should be happy about that. It also creates, as you suggest, it creates more space for books that push back against Jordan Peterson's view of the world. Because if he becomes... Uh, an even better known author than he already is, then that opens up the space for criticism, critiques, um, even books in response to uh, his rules for life. So there's a lot, it, There's a. it's good for this book to be published, even for people who hate Jordan Peterson. But the reason they can't think about those things, the reason they can't even factor in the, the fact that, it's, that this is good for their company, good for their jobs, good for their industry, is because they are so ideologically wedded to the idea of cancellation and it overrides everything else. And I think um, I, you mentioned the generational thing. I do think there is a generational problem. I think this is much more pronounced among younger people, but it didn't come out of thin air. I think a, a lot of the fault lies with older people in terms of the political culture we have created over the past 30 or 40 years, the education system in particular, with its obsessive focus on self-esteem and protecting yourself from offence, the university system, which have become, you know, in some cases, factories of conformism rather than um, citadels of intellectual experimentation. So the older generation has a lot to answer for. Um, but I think in terms of the younger people, they... Uh, you know, we, uh, we, in a sense, we shouldn't insult them too much because they genuinely feel that they will be wounded by this book. And that's something we have to get to grips with. We have to get to grips with the fact that they really feel that. And the, the, the reason they really feel that is because they've been educated and socialized into a view of speech as harmful and safety is the overarching moral goal of uh, one's existence. That's a really tragic way of life to have been socialized into and how we socialize them out of that, how we encourage them to realize that being offended is good for you because it helps you to change your mind or it keeps your wits alive and that freedom of speech is good, especially for powerless people because it allows them to organize and to express themselves. Those are the kind of ideas we need to encourage them to embrace in order to socialize them out of this uh, dead end of constant cancellation and illiberalism. That's very important because what I have trouble explaining to people outside of the academia, who are outside of this world, let's say, is that these tears are real. When you hear about the nervous breakdowns in the US campus against Christakis or against Weinstein, all these things that you see on YouTube, they're real. These students, are they actually feel that this is a threat to them. And our friend Claire Fox in her book, You Can't Say That, uh, or sorry, I found that offensive. She mentioned this. She says, don't blame the, snow, the quote snowflakes. Blame the people, first of all, who taught them to use the language of therapy. Mm -hmm. So you have, let's say, five, five years old children saying things like using this language of mental health to describe issues that 
you would never imagine them using that language. It, so it used to be, I disagree with that person. Now it's that person is dangerous for me. And see here how the, it's very easy to say, look, <clears throat> Brendan is good. Uh, you are wrong because that's why his ideas are good. But when someone says, Brendan coming to my campus is a safety concern for me or for my brothers and sisters, whatever, this is almost a way to say the discussion is over. And you mm -hmm. use the term tantrum. In a way, it is a tantrum, a sincere but very dangerous tantrum because they feel that this is the case. But as you said, this doesn't make it, actually it makes it less, actually it makes it more dangerous. So last question, do you think this is going to reach a tipping point where we're going to say, okay, that's ridiculous, that's enough? Or do you think we're up for even worse stuff coming on our way? Um, I think we're probably going to get worse stuff. I think, um, and, and precisely because there's, I mean, there is pushback. There's lots more criticism now of cancel culture, um, but it is still largely limited to individuals who are willing to put their necks on the line. People like you guys, certain think tanks, maybe certain publications. There's a handful of people and institutions saying, look, this has gone too far. But the general culture is still favorable of the, as you say, highly therapeutic idea that you must protect yourself against offense because it could harm you, it could wound you. Words are just as bad as violence. All those ideas have taken hold, especially among younger people, but across society more broadly. Um, and you're absolutely right. This is not fake. When, when they have these meltdowns, I mean, some of them might be acting, but a lot of them aren't. And I've seen it myself. I've had people protesting against me at Oxford and other places. And at one speech I did in Oxford, someone was physically triggered. And I'd, I'd never seen a triggering before, but this person um, was struggling to breathe and, and couldn't express themselves and had to be helped from the room. And it was when that happened about three years ago that I really understood that how dangerous this culture is because we have encouraged young people in particular to see themselves as hyper vulnerable and to see, um, to see themselves as hyper fragile and words can hurt them, ideas can hurt them. Um, someone criticizing the excesses of transgender activism will erase them. I mean, this really um, apocalyptic language which encourages them to think that anyone who criticizes them is essentially going to erase their existence. So they feel this in a very real way. I'm sure they sit at home fretting for hours on end about the horrors of what people are saying online. And that's a really miserable way to live. So the sooner we get a grip of the education system in particular and the university system and the broader political culture and say, listen, freedom has got to be the number one goal, which we encourage all young people to embrace. Until we do that, I think it is going to get worse because the pushback at the moment, sadly, is not sufficient. And the woke mobs, I think, are feeling quite bold at the moment. Was this Oxford event the one that was a vigil for the victims of Brendan O'Neill? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Right. That, that says everything about uh, what you need to know about the understanding of reality in, in the way these people have been taught to understand it. Anyway, we've run out of time. So, Brennan, thanks so much. Tell us, how can people follow your follow your work? Um, they can read Spiked, of course. You can follow Spiked. I'm not on Twitter, but you can follow Spiked on Twitter at Spiked Online. Um, I'm on Instagram, but that's mainly just boring photos rather than anything <laughs> interesting. 
Yeah, I, I disagree that they're boring, but anyway. And people, tomorrow, remember, we have the premiere of the show on the philosophic view on love and sex, The Selfish Lovers, by Gloria Alvarez. I, I'm in the first episode discussing whether people should form relationships with people they deeply, 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 deeply disagree with, or whether that's going to be a fiasco and a train wreck. Till then, and till tomorrow's episode, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you all. See you soon. Bye-bye.